This past Christmas, I had the privilege of going to the Billy Graham Library and Conference Center on the outskirts of Charlotte, North Carolina. Any of you been there before? Oh, wow, a good number of you. Billy Graham, of course, is the famed preacher of the gospel around the country and around the world, uh, especially in the second half of the 20th century. And he died a year ago last month. He, of course, received a lot of praise for the impact of his life. He was known around the world for uh, revivals and gospel crusades that he led. Many people, in fact, some of you may associate your spiritual life with Billy Graham and the unique way that God used him. But Billy Graham, when asked, had a certain level of discomfort with that association. He said, the secret is not me. So many people think that somehow I carry around revival in a suitcase and they just announce me and something happens. That's not true. This is the work of God, and the Bible warns that God will not share his glory with another. If God should take his hand off me, Graham said, I would have no more spiritual power. I cannot take credit for any of it. Along with Billy Graham, there was another leader who lived almost 3,500 years ago who also had a long life, who enjoyed much success and could have said the same thing. And we hear from him at the end of his life today. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John, excuse me, Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12. And if you don't have a hard copy, that's especially valuable today because we're going to be looking at several different passages. We have some hosts in the aisles there who would be glad to give you a copy. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. Take, enjoy, and use. If you do, but you just forgot yours today, uh, you can turn that back in as you exit the services this morning. As you know, since the beginning of January, the middle of January, we've been in a lengthy series in the book of Joshua. We've called it again and again where we see the power of God demonstrated in his faithfulness to his people again and again as they take possession of the promised land. And in the past two weeks... We've looked at Joshua chapter 9 through 11. Now, Pastor Dave and then last week, Chaplain Mark Penfold uh, led us through uh, that section as the children of Israel take possession of both the northern and the southern cities in the promised land. I'm grateful for their uh, work to lead us through that. I just decided to go to the Holy Land myself, and it was a great experience. Today, we're wrapping up the series, and we reach the culminating chapters of Joshua 22 to 24. Now, wait a minute, you said. Didn't you just tell me to turn in my Bible to chapter 12? Well, yes. Joshua chapter 12 actually begins a long section in the book which demonstrates the progress made and the lands that were conquered there. More specifically, if you leaf through the pages beginning in Joshua 12, you see how uh, the, the various regions of the promised land are apportioned to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob and their descendants. If we put it another way, chapters 6 to 12, where we've spent a lot of time, have to do with the taking of the land, and chapters 13 to 21 tell us about the distribution of the land. Now, let's be clear about a couple of things regarding this section of Scripture. First of all, it's inspired and authoritative Scripture, just as much as any other part of our Bible. 
just because it's harder to understand or more culturally different for us doesn't say anything about its truthfulness or its place in Scripture. It belongs there. Second thing, though, we would say is that this is not easy reading. And the reason is quite simple here. It involves a highly detailed summary account of cities and towns and geographical landmarks about a land that we would call ancient Palestine. And most of us are highly unfamiliar with that. I just spent the better part of two weeks there. And when I read these chapters, I still need a map in front of me. It's almost Greek to me where these places are. Third, though this is most certainly scripture, it, let's be honest, makes for some difficult and awkward preaching passages. The main point can be seen, even with a cursory look turning the pages here, and we find a summary of that main point in the final chapters of Joshua, chapters 22 to 24, where we'll be today. So in the interest of time, and flow and impact, we're going to fly over Joshua, 20, uh, Joshua 12 to 21, and we're going to approach a runway for landing in the final three chapters there. And I think the significance of all of this will become clear to you with this particular flight path. To be specific, here's what we're going to attempt today. We're going to look at the main point in each of those three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, and I'm adding a fourth point from the end of chapter 21, which may be the best summary of the entire book. That will be clear as we go through here. We're going to look at a key verse or a couple of verses in each chapter to orient us to the chapter as a whole and its message. And we're going to find the lessons of Joshua to be impactful and applicable to us because the same God who is there with Joshua is the God of us today. He's a powerful God. He's consistent with his nature. And he's faithful to his promises. Here's a good summary, as one Old Testament scholar gave, of these chapters. Joshua blesses the people. He urges them to follow the Lord. He warns them of the consequences if they don't. He reviews God's faithfulness to them. And then he challenges them as he challenges us to follow God. First point in your outline, the end of chapter 21, the Lord gives lavishly in his provision. Read with me there, beginning in verse 43 of Joshua 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. If there was ever a summary declaration for a book in the Bible, this is the classic. So if you were reading Joshua in one long sitting here, you'd be nodding off at times as places were listed, but you'd perk up right now. You've been reading along about various uh, Israelite regions, about the tribes of Israel. You've been hearing about the expanse of this new land. All of a description about a promise made and a promised reality. The Israelites are now possessing the promised land. 
And yet when you reach Joshua 21, verse 43, you hear these very words. And all of a sudden, it's as if you're catapulted from the details of ground level straight into the sky so that you see with a bird's eye view everything that had taken place. It's like walking the streets of a large city, New York or, say, Chicago, and you're listening to your tour guide describe each building you pass by and the significance of each city block. And the whole time you're wondering, where am I in this big, bustling city? But it takes only two minutes when you walk into the Sears Tower, now they call it the Willis Tower, and shoot up the elevator there and you walk out and all of a sudden, you don't just see the loop in Chicago, you see a three-state area in all of its vast expanse and breadth. Now the whole thing fits together like a fantastic storyline. Or if you don't like the big city, then put yourself at Cedar Point. You've been there, many of you have. Everything's a mass of people and noise and stores. But in just a moment's time, if you strap yourself in at the power tower, you're rocketed from the ground, from terra firma, hundreds of feet straight into the air, and now you can see all of Cedar Point. Now you can see Lake Erie before you glistening off the water, at least in the summer, and all the expanse of the coastline there. You take in not just an entire amusement park, but you take in miles and miles around you. You go from the details to this magnificent summary. That's what Joshua does here. Several things stand out at the, in these verses at the end of Joshua 21. First of all, we, we don't read once or twice, but three times, the Lord gave. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. You know, when things go right in life, when the outcome is what we hoped for, it is incredibly easy for us to take credit for it. Have you noticed that? That's true in our relationships. That's true in our finances. That's true in our career success and our academic achievement. And that's not just true today, that was true back then. A temptation for the Israelites. Because they had put blood, sweat, and years into waiting and now possessing the promised land. But Joshua was determined to remind them where credit was due. It was the Lord who had made all this possible. Land and rest and victory, it was from him. Second thing we notice there in those verses is multiple times it's said that the Lord has promised, the Lord has sworn. It wasn't like, you know, some March Madness game where nobody really knows the outcome in advance. It's not like that 20-year-old cocky kid who guarantees that his team will win, but he has no clue. No, these are the promises of God. And the God who made history because he designed all of us is the God who can say with absolute certainty, this will come to pass, and it does. When God promises, God delivers. One more thing, a third thing we see in these verses is the totality of the Israelite possession of the land. In Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament the word all appears six times, and we see it uh, a number of times in our English Bibles, where you see the word all or every there in, at the end of Joshua 21. That's what it notes. The Lord has been completely good 
are true to his good promises. None of them have failed. All of them have come to pass. God's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. And to be on the Lord's side is not just safe. It's a guarantee of victory. That's the end of Joshua chapter 21. And it prepares us for three additional points in each of the three chapters that conclude Joshua. The first of those is this. The Lord expects allegiance from his people. A little background's in order here. You might remember that the promised land was given to the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes was named Levi. But the Levites were the priestly tribe, so they didn't get an allotment of land. There was also a, a, a tribe called Manasseh and Ephraim, actually the two sons of Joseph. Half-tribes, as we might call them. So you take one away from the Levites, but you add one because of two to the descendants of Joseph, and you're back at 12. And to them are apportioned regions in the promised land. The land there uh, sits between the Mediterranean Sea on the uh, left or west side, as we look at a map, and extends to the Jordan River on the right or the east side, as we look at a map. The, the Israelites came up from the south around the east side of the Dead Sea. I've been there. It exists. And then took or possessed the land to the west. Now, a little background uh, is important as well with several of those tribes. A couple of those tribes of Israel, as they were waiting to possess the land on the east side of the Jordan River, had said to Moses, Moses, this land here is fantastic for the grazing of our livestock. After we go in and help our brothers conquer the land, can we have this land back here? And Moses said, yes. So they joined with their brothers as they conquered the land, as the Israelites took over that land west of the Jordan River. And Joshua, when reminded, affirms what Moses had decided. Those several tribes could return east on the other side of the Jordan. Look at verse 1 of Joshua 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Go down to verse 4. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side, east side of the Jordan. So that's what they do. But before they depart, Joshua has some strong words of admonition for them. It's almost as if Joshua grabs them gently but firmly by the collar and reminds them of something that actually all the tribes needed to hear and we need to hear today. Verse 5. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to him. To keep his commandments. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Comprehensive. Joshua says that God means business. God sees, and they should know that the law of Moses and the commandment on how to live are essential. Look at how Joshua stacks up verbs there. Love, walk, keep, hold fast, serve. They lay out what a proper response to God then and now 
looks like. If you think about it, this is not some kind of just say some, some words about how you believe in God kind of message. Because neither then nor now does simple verbal assent to God's existence and God's presence represent a sufficient response. You might remember that in the New Testament, James chapter 2, it says that even the demons believe in God and what? And shudder. So if you believe in God good, you're at the same level as the demons. You see, a saving relationship with God has always been far more about allegiance than assent. Far more than a contract, it's a covenant. More than a fleeting response in the moment, it's an enduring relationship in the present. And Joshua makes clear that the only appropriate response for God's people is wholehearted allegiance to the Lord. To love him, obey him, keep his commands, cling to him, serve him. Anything short of that represents a misunderstanding of who God is and what God calls. No, God invites us to embrace his authority and his love in our lives. Now, even though we list five verbs there, Joshua does, there's one that seems primary, and it's the first one, to love the Lord your God. And that should ring a bell because Jesus said something about that, quoting back from Deuteronomy and the Shema, something that all the Jews quoted and knew by heart. It goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your heart. Our glad response to the Lord is based on our genuine love for Him. The God who exists is no longer the terror in the sky who seeks to judge us, but now He has become the Savior of our lives to enjoy us. He's become a father with relationship to us. We obey, we cling, we heed because we love God. Warren Wiersbe says the motive for their obedience had to be love for the Lord their God. If they loved him, then they would delight in walking in all his ways and obeying all his commandments because he's become precious to them. Is God precious to you today? Is he no longer just the terror in the sky, but the father in your life? That's what he intends for those he saves. The rest of the chapter bears that out in the lives of the Israelites. We don't have time to explore that whole story, but because of their love for God and their zeal for God, they're willing to get in each other's faces to make sure that they're walking with God. And they're concerned when groups or individuals are distracted, diverted, devastated because they're off the beaten path. That kind of priority, that kind of obedience to God comes from a heart of love, of affection, of allegiance to God. That has always marked those who are faithful to him. The third and fourth points in your outline are consistent with the, third, or the last two chapters of the book. Essentially, these are farewell speeches from Joshua. 
The first one, chapter 23, is delivered to leaders. It's, it's less formal. It's a monologue from Joshua. He pleads with them to follow the Lord, and he warns them of the consequences of forsaking him. In short, Joshua warns against spiritual syncretism. Joshua warns against spiritual syncretism. Look at verse 6 of Joshua 23. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? At the very beginning of Joshua, if we flip back many pages, we would read these words from God to Joshua. Joshua 1.7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it to the right, from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Just as God was intent on Joshua being single-minded and focused on God's ways and following him. Now Joshua, at the end of his days, says to the people, you need to be single-minded and focused on what God wants from us the rest of your days. Joshua knew there would be temptations to get off the path, and he warned them against that. He warned them against the lure of syncretism. Now, I know that syncretism is not a word that we normally use in our conversation. In fact, you may be unaware of its meaning. But I'm certain that you've experienced its temptation. At its heart, syncretism is the blending of core elements of two or more faiths that end up changing the essence of both of them. Let me say that again. Syncretism is the blending of core elements of two or more faiths that end up changing the essence of both of them. It's not adapting a faith or faith system to a new environment. It's diluting a faith system so it loses its uniqueness. What's that look like? Back when I was a kid, we uh, frequently went to day camps or sports camps in the summer. One such camp was called Lancer Basketball Camp on the campus of Grace College, run by my now friend and then our neighbor, and for 42 years the head basketball coach of the Grace College Lancers, Jim Kessler. And much of the fun, to be honest, of Lancer Basketball Camp went beyond basketball. Because for a 12-year-old kid, say, the best part of it was the $50 or so that you had that you got to spend at the snack shop without mom and dad peering over your shoulder. And for many of us, the snack shop meant drinking obscene amounts of pop or soda and eating far too many candy bars. And when we ordered our fountain drinks, we were able to get creative there. Because no longer did we have to order Coke or Mellow Yellow, or root beer, or cream soda, or Fanta. If we wanted, we could order something called a suicide. And a suicide was a full 16 ounces that include, included generous amounts of each of those kinds of fountain drinks. 
It seemed risky to us because you never knew how it would taste. It depended how much of each drink you got. So usually some kid from our gang would go up and order his drink, and then he'd taste it, and he'd wrinkle up his face and let out a disgusting groan to signify how awful it was. But sometimes you struck gold. It tasted better than any of the individual drinks on their own. And that was the goal. Everything together would be better than any exclusive drink. In the suicide drink, the exclusive drinks had lost their core uniqueness. That's all fun and games and a lot of stomach aches with fountain drinks. But it's deadly when it comes to faith commitments in life. And that's what Joshua warns against. See, Joshua knew that in time the Israelites would become attracted to things in the world, in the pagan cultures around them, the, the practices, the morals in that land. Joshua knew that in time things would seem good and invite pleasure and feel desirable for them. And he warned them not to defect from their allegiance to God because they knew certain things about God and they had seen how he acted. Let me ask you, have you ever noticed that, that nations often lose in peacetime what they've gained in war? I sometimes wonder if we're living in a particularly acute phase of that in our own country. In wartime, the mission's clear. The sacrifice is evident. The purpose is vivid. People know who they are. And, and, and they know what they're fighting for. They can tell you what they affirm and they can tell you what they reject. Go back 75 years or so in our history and you'll find people who knew that they were anti-communist and anti-fascist and pro-freedom and pro-nuclear family and cheering of marriage and independent and strong and given to duty, etc. But today we have trouble defining who we are and even what we cherish. Freedom to us today is basically to let everyone do what is pleasurable in their own eyes. So we speak of things like consent and tolerance and liberty and consumption. We like all that. But we have little agreement on common purpose. We're drunk on peacetime abundance, not on wartime focus. And what afflicts nations also afflicts individuals. Josh was deeply concerned about that. Because it's when we have freedom, when there is a lack of restraint, when our memory lapses, when we have a lack of purpose, we end up making choices that do us in. We compromise our identity. And we end up undermining our very well-being. And nowhere do we see this more and more devastating than in our core commitments of our faith and to our God. So be careful who you fraternize with, Joshua says. Be mindful of their values and their priorities. Be wary of their patterns and their worship. Remember the old story about the frog in the kettle? Without vigilance, you will get cooked by the slow appeal of their commitments, and it will lure you away 
from the only true God. Joshua might say connections can be fruitful, but bad commitments can be fatal. And Paul warns us about that this side of the cross of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and following says this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Be careful who has access to your allegiances. What's the answer? Well, it's to know the one to whom you belong. It's to cherish the one who gives life. Joshua 23.11 says it very simply there. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. And love, friends, is more than just an affection. It demonstrates itself in action. The old Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce said it like this. Obeying God and loving God go together. Don't say you love God if you're not obeying his commands in the Bible. That's hypocrisy. If you love God, you will keep his commands. And if you attempt to obey those commands and sincerely walk in God's ways, you will find yourself coming to love God more and more. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. But when you do it, there's a strange way in which the desire increases. And God knows that. You find out that what God... What God promises and what God gives and what God expects is good for you. The Israelites heard that from Joshua in their day and they embraced God with delight. And so should we. Finally, the last point in your outline, the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua leads with personal commitment. Joshua 24 is a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. This was common back in ancient times there. there. There was a kind of treaty that was made between a vassal king and his people. And God, Yahweh, takes that common practice and transforms it in a covenant with his own people. Mostly this comes from the lips of Joshua, but the people respond as well. And here Joshua is not just talking to the leaders anymore, but he's talking to the entire nation to the Israelites. And he recounts everything that the Lord had done for them and his address is charged with meaning and significance. Joshua starts out by reminding the people of their origins. Verse 2, Joshua 24, he, he mentions Abraham. Abraham came from humble, pagan beginnings. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river. And what did they do? They worshipped other gods. In other words, they had no more inherent value or appeal than the very people that you've just conquered, said Joshua. It wasn't because of their might or their power or the ferocity of, of their own weapons, Joshua says. It's because of the Lord. 
He called your ancestors out, not because they were better, but because he's God. And it's by God's power that this has been accomplished now for you. And the entire book of Joshua affirms again and again that God is the primary actor and provider in life. Joshua goes on to record the whole history of the Israelites. He says in verse 12 at the end, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. In other words, people, this is not about your superiority. This is about the kindness of God in your life. So how should you respond? Verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Joshua says, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in the land in which you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. This, friends, is leading by example. This is sticking your neck out. This is driving a stake in the ground. And this is provoking other people to choose the same thing. Joshua says to them, you can choose what you want. And you can choose to submit yourselves to the only true God who has done all of this for you. Or you can go back to the comfort of your old gods and the empty chasing and empty life that will give. But as for me and us, we will serve the Lord. And this brings out the desired response. There's a riveting interchange that happens here in chapter 24. And the people declare their allegiance to Yahweh, to God alone. And they declare that because they've seen what God has done, they will serve him. And Joshua provokes them. He says, are you sure? Are you serious? Do you really mean what you say? See, Joshua knew that it was easy for people to promise obedience to the Lord. But it was quite something else for them to actually do it. And so his stern words were meant to curb their overconfidence and to make them look honestly into their own hearts. And we all need that. Even long after we've pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ, to the only true God, we need to be called out and called back to our covenant commitment to him. See, Wearsby writes, if the Jews didn't worship the true God, they would end up worshiping the false gods of the wicked nations of Canaan. They couldn't do both, and neither can we. If people today don't choose to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ alone, they'll waste their lives in submission to false gods. They'll try to have it both ways. They'll try to sit on both sides of the fence. They'll try to dabble in some supplements to their faith in Jesus. But to do so denies who he is. See, we need to be like the believers who are willing to acknowledge that our hearts are prone to wander 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when we say that to God, he holds us in his hand. And he causes us to see his unique goodness and power in our lives. We need to say, like the Israelites said back then, Lord, we love you, we need you, and we will serve you. There is no other. As we close, what are some highlights from the book of Joshua that we ought to take with us long beyond today? Let me name seven. They're short. Number one, God is the creator of all the earth. God is sovereign. There's no one like him. Number two, he's the Lord of his people. He's personal. God desires relationship with his people, including you. Number three, God keeps his promises. He is dependable. Doesn't it say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Number four, God is not apathetic towards sin. He is holy. Life's meant to be lived on God's terms, not mine. Number five, God expects obedience from his people because he's a jealous God. God asks for submission, not negotiation. Number six, God's plans never fail. He is victorious. The outcome of life and eternity is not in doubt. Get on God's side. And finally, number seven, God's ways are always for our good. He is trustworthy. And he's never shown it so much as in the person of Jesus Christ, who did everything for our salvation, and it's offered to you. With God, there is lasting reward, because he is faithful to the end. All our blessings come from God. He's faithful to his people, he's faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to his glory. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Only a God like you is worthy of our worship. We could never invent or craft a God like you because you're far better than that. God, you are what we need and you have what we long for. We need your power, we need your sovereignty, we need your love, we need your kindness to us. And you've shown it again and again. Thank you, O oh God, that you are the same God as the one who appeared to Joshua and those people those many years ago. And you're a God who invites us to walk with you as you lead us in the paths of life. And you make it possible through Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that you're a promise maker and a promise keeper. And we need you to make us faithful to a faithful God like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.